that we would find life. And so this morning, Father, as we come to your word, we, we need to hear from you. We're so grateful that you have preserved your scripture, that you have kept it for us, that you have allowed it to be translated into our language so we can read and understand it. More importantly than even that, we are grateful for your spirit that's at work in each one of us, um, provoking the songs. And so this morning, Father, teach us. We pray that you would work against any resistance that's in our hearts that we have, that we'd be able to hear you. Pray that you'd use me as your messenger and your word and your spirit as the power so that when we leave this morning, we'll be transformed just a little bit more into the image of Christ, that we'll be able to carry out and live out the fragrance of the knowledge of him so that others would see and know him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can we be seated? Chad, I hope you took that fly with you. So, I was thinking, I don't know what you do with it. Continues to come back. Um, I'm going to take my jacket off. I, first service was pretty warm, and uh, by the end of the service, I was just sweating, and I didn't even realize it afterwards, and so get a good start. If you can open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, we're going to look at this morning and next week. Um, little self-disclosure, I intended initially to, to do a couple different passages from this, uh, this, this section in the scripture, and Friday when I was working on this, I realized there's more than just one sermon, and I get two weeks, so uh, instead of making two sermons in one, there's going to be two sermons out of this one, so this same text, so I'll be looking at the uh, first part and then the second part next week. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Um, when I came to Troas to speak preach the gospel of Christ. Even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, and the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now this section really begins a whole several chapters where Paul breaks from his what he's teaching or discussing with the Corinthians in terms of his itinerary and why he came here and didn't go back. And in these next few chapters, what he does is he begins to unpack his ministry, the basis for his ministry, the motivation for his ministry. And he wants to present to the Corinthians, if you will, a picture of what authentic ministry looks like as it's driven by the new covenant, as it's driven by what God has done for us in Christ. And this whole section, chapter, this section that I read up through chapter 5, for me personally has some of those memories. When I was... Uh, in college in 1988, um, a few years ago, uh, I was on a missions project in uh, Hungary. Spent a summer there, and our text for that summer was this text. We spent the whole summer studying these chapters up through chapter 5, beginning in the passage I just read. And so as I think about this text, I think about that experience in those, those days, those months that I spent in Hungary, so we shared the gospel with those who were there. 
And even more ironically, perhaps God providentially had me over the last several months, we were teaching this or leading a small group study on Wednesday morning through this section of Scripture as we were preparing for our trip to Ethiopia. Some of you know that our family and another family and uh, several of us went to Ethiopia for a few days, 17 days, on a missions trip, a scouting trip. And as I think about even those days in, in Ethiopia, in Mekele, Ethiopia, where we spent the bulk of our time, as I think about the time preceding that trip and even after the trip, it's this text has helped me to understand what took place there. If you will, I've seen my experience. I've understood what took place in 1988. I've understood what took place over the last few months through the lens of this text. And I understand this text through my experience at the same time as God has taught. And so that's the beauty of Scripture. If you've been in those times in your life where God has used passages in which you think about that time or that season or that challenging season or whatever you might, you think the passage. And you understand it through the lens of that passage. And this is one of those passages for me personally. And the key image that Paul uses in this text in the, the, that I just read is this triumphal procession of Christ. It's an image of Christ leading and triumphing over all of his foes. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. This entire section, again referring to this section I read up through chapter 5 and 6, is really a, one of the more vivid pictures we have of Paul's ministry as he explains his motivation. The church that he's writing to in Corinth had raised questions about his credibility, began to, to wonder if indeed he was an apostle, began to wonder about the authority of his teaching. And so this letter is a section, it's an attempt to say, guys, you know what my ministry looked like. This is what motivates me. What else do you need? You've seen me. I've spent time with you. And so we have a, a picture of Paul's heart of his ministry. It's very biogra autobiographical. So we get a picture of Paul and what drove him, what motivated him, what kept and sustained him in ministry in spite of difficulties. And even though it's autobiographical and certainly relates to him specifically, it certainly applies to us as we seek to follow Christ, as we seek to honor him, as we seek... To, to do that. I see our, our friend is back. Chad, you do something about that? Anyway, and so a little bit of the, the context as we, as we look at this. We see, if you remember, in, in Acts chapter 18, uh, Paul went and he visited Corinth. Um, we have a vision of Christ. Christ shows up in vision to Paul and says, you need to stay here because I have many people in this city. And so he stays in Corinth about a year and a half. He stays in Corinth as long as he stayed anywhere with the exception of in, in Ephesus. So he spent a good deal of time with those in Corinth, teaching them, preaching the gospel, helping to establish them and found them in the faith. And yet as he leaves, if you read the first letter that we have, you'll find that there was many problems that the church was having. In fact, there was a couple of the letters that we don't have in Scripture that if we did, it would help us. But we have some idea that Paul had a continual conversation with him, dealing with issues, trying to correct them, trying to bring them back in line with the gospel because of the difficulties they were having. And so this is the setting we have. He'd spent a good deal of time there uh, correcting them. In, in the very first verse of chapter 2, you see, he says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. He, has vis he had visited them. It was a painful ordeal, really more so for them as he tried to correct them. And he had intended to go back, but he chose not to at that point in time. And then he had written a letter to them as well that he describes as a severe letter. And so what he does is he sends Titus. Sends Titus to instruct them, to, 
to correct them. And the place where we see that he is here in the text is he is in Troas waiting for Titus to return. He's waiting for the return of Titus, certainly for encouragement, but more so to hear what is their response. What's the response of the Corinthians to, your, to their correction? And so he's waiting for Titus. Now the nature of his relationship with them is certainly not, is not good. Much relational strife and disappointment. Much disunity among the church as well as uh, disunity between he and them. And if you can imagine having poured your life into a group of people for a number of years, for a chunk of time, only to find them calling into question your own ministry. Calling into question the validity of your ministry. And you can imagine that, that Paul personally must have been hurt as they would question him. And he would say, didn't you see the way that I did ministry? Didn't you see my life? And yet, there was a great question that they had of him. They questioned him deeply. And so you can imagine the, the, the emotional, the relational pain that would be there as well as the spiritual pain. How are they going to turn out? How are they going to respond? Will they turn back? Will they continue on their way? Will they continue to question my authority? Will they continue to question the gospel? How will they turn out? And so there's a spiritual pain of wondering how they would do and certainly as he wondered and waited for Titus' response, we see that in this passage as he's writing to them, this is the condition, this is the situation that he finds himself. Trust waiting for Timothy. And yet in verse 14, we have this phrase as he remembers, if you will, he recalls to mind the truth of what really is. In spite of the difficulties, in spite of the, the, the hurt that's there in his relationship, in spite of wondering what's going to happen with the church in Corinth, he says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal possession. And so, no matter what he saw physically, no matter what he felt emotionally, no matter what the circumstances looked like, no matter the questions that still remained, what he does is he raises his perspective and he says, but this I know for sure. This I know for certain. And it's a vision, it's a, an understanding that when Christ leads, He leads only in triumph regardless of the circumstances or how they might see. And so, this is the triumph. And for us, what he calls us, and the passage calls us, is to apprehend, if you will, a perspective that's beyond just what we see. Just beyond the pain and the difficulties of the circumstances that all of us find ourselves in. Even as we try to follow Christ and try to represent him wherever we go, in the difficulties we find that he leads in triumph, and yet we need to ask the question, what's that triumph look like? that he leads us in. What's that look like? Well, this, this week I want to ask a couple of questions as this triumph relates to our lives. As we attempt to live it out day in and day out. The first two questions I'm going to ask, I want to ask today is, what's the setting in which we find this triumph? And the second one is, what's the position in which we find ourselves in this triumphal possession, procession? And if you will, this is really the backdrop of the text Next week, we're going to look at the, really the forefront of the text, what the text leads us to do and what it, how it leads us to live. But the first question is, what's the setting in which this comes to us, this triumphal procession? In verse 12 and 13, we see, and I've already alluded to, that the setting in which Paul finds himself is a real setting in which there's real hurt and there's real pain and there's real questions and there's real wondering exactly how the church would turn out. He really wonders, how will they respond to Titus? He wonders, what will they do? And what will be the message that Titus brings to me? 
And so you see there, he says, when I came to trust to preach the gospel, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went out to Macedonia. You see, as he comes to this place to preach, God opens a door. Now, basically what that means is it seems like there was an opportunity. There were people responding. And if you think about the apostle Paul, the apostle Paul who was the apostle to the Gentiles, who, if you will, his, he was identified in that preaching. And that's what he longed and loved to do. But because of the nature of the circumstances, of his relationship with Corinth, because of the questions that he had about how they would respond, because of his concern for them, you see that his spirit was at unrest. He could not continue to do the very thing that he loved to do because of the questions that were still there remaining. And if you put yourself in that circumstance, and many of us have been in similar kinds of circumstances, where because of questions and things that have been unresolved in our lives, because of the situations that we don't know how they're going to turn out, because of the job we're not sure if we're going to get, or the, the test that we will get back, we wonder how that went physically, situation after situation, it's hard to do the thing that we want to do. It's hard to enjoy anything because of the circumstances, because we wonder what will be the outcome. And you see Paul, his spirit was at unrest. He could not continue to preach the gospel, even though people were responding, because of his concern for the church, because of his concern for how they would respond. And indeed, there were some that had indicted him or questioned him on his concern for them. This is a great picture of his concern for them and how they would respond, because it affected his ministry. And if you'll turn with me real quick to uh, chapter 11 of the same same book we get a picture here of Paul's concern for the church and the if you will the reality of his circumstances I'm going to read verses 24 through 28 it's a fairly notable passage where Paul outlines and describes his suffering that he went through and then at the very end the last verse he describes a different kind of suffering a different kind of anxiety verse 24 five times I received at the hands I'm sorry did I say 11? Uh, chapter 11 verse 24 Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, even without food, and in cold and exposure. And then verse 28, And apart from other things, these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. You see that his concern for the churches and how they would respond was huge, even more so than his physical persecution, even more so than the suffering that he would undergo for the church. It was how will they respond in light of all of this. And so, this triumphal procession leads Paul right in the middle of real circumstances, really diff real difficulties, emotional pain and emotional hurt. The triumphal procession in which God leads us is not around fallenness. It's not around brokenness. It's not around pain, but it's right in the middle of it. But the great promise is that even as he promises to lead us in triumph, that nothing in this fallen world, our relationships, the tension that's there, the structures, will prevent God from triumphing in the midst of those difficulties. And so the, the context, the setting of the triumphal procession is right in the middle of difficulties in our own lives. And for each one of us here today, as a church, as a congregation, we share 
the kinds of situations that are real, the hurts, the relationships that are at tension. We prayed for Caden White and we continue to pray for him and we ask the question, is God leading, leading in triumph? How do we understand his triumphal procession in a situation such as that? We spent our time in, in Ethiopia those days and many of the questions that I had as we walked through the streets and visited the orphanages and talked with some pastors, I realized, what does triumph look like here? And the questions we ask seem unanswerable. And we wonder, God, can you really lead in triumph? Are you really leading here? Because do you really understand the pain? Do you really understand the suffering? Do you really understand the circumstances? Do you really understand the dysfunction? Do you really understand these things? And certainly Paul, as he was relating with the Corinthians, might have asked these same questions. Lord, do you really know what's going on here? Are you really able to lead even in a circumstance in which we're at odds? Paul the Apostle with the church in Corinth. And yet, can you really lead us in triumph? And those are the same questions that we ask, that he would ask. And yet, the reality is that we must see with the eyes that he saw is that God leads us in triumphal procession. When, when we were um, preparing for our trip to Ethiopia, this was about, well, you obviously start a few months out. We start a little bit later than we probably should have. But the first step is to, to get your passport, right? So we went to the passport office, and they assured us that we would get our passports six weeks prior to us before our departure day. They assured us, no problem, you'll have the passports. We were about a week and a half before we were departing, and no passports. Some of you know this saga. Some of you have actually tried to get passports and experience it yourselves. We were waiting, and we as a team had gathered around the table in our house, and we're, we're sitting there wondering, are the passports going to come? We'd spent a fair amount of money with lots of zeros behind it for, for tickets that would not be worth much to us if we didn't have passports. And there was this conversation that went on as the, the team that was going, trying to make sense of the, search, of the situation. If you will, good Presbyterians trying to understand God's sovereignty, and yet here we sit with no passports. It's got to be really easy for you a week ago or two weeks ago or three weeks ago if you just, you know, our plan involved, they would be there right here and right now. And yet we sat around going, what's this look like? And we wrestled with his triumphal leading, if you will. We believe that you've led us here, and yet we were not sure in the very end what that triumph would look like. We didn't know for certain, and there was no certainty that we had or anyone else could give us that we would get those passports and that we would actually go. And so we were wrestling with that. And our words, maybe these weren't spoken, but for me it was something like this. Lord, you may be sovereign, but this is really complicated. This is really difficult. So much so we had to um, get a hold of a congressman, and, and it was helpful in getting those. And, and yet the bottom line was, what, how will this turn out? And we weren't exactly sure how it would turn out. That's a little example, and in retrospect, it was nothing. It was a speck. And at the time, it was huge. And as I look back, guess what? God was leading in triumph. It was true. We weren't sure what form that triumph would take. The same is true for us. God leads us, but it's through a real world. It's in a broken world. as broken people. And he promises that he will lead us to triumph. And in the midst of that, we'll have pain and suffering and difficulty, and we know that. But it's not for naught. It is in hope that we wait. So as we look at this triumphal procession that Paul is, is describing, we see it's in a real situation. 
And then we move on and we see, we ask the question, what position does he understand himself to be in in this procession? If you will, it's a, it's a setting that we probably aren't familiar with. I know that I'm not. A triumphal procession, if you will, would be one that they were seen where a king, a victorious commander or king, would make his way through the streets of a city. And people would come and they watch and there would be a procession. And in this procession would be the king, of course, perhaps his commanding officers. But what would be a part of the procession as well would be his captives. If you can imagine that as he would go to battle and he would win, he would take the highest ranking officers, his captives, and he would bring them as a part of this procession. And he would parade them through the streets. And as they would go through the streets, they would what? Put on display his power. By displaying these captives, he would reveal, see the power in which I have, because I have taken captive the generals of our enemy. And here they are under my control. And indeed, as he would move his way, make his way through the streets, they would go. These, these captives were not prisoners of war in the way that we would think about it. They're prisoners of war, yes, but they were prisoners of war on their way to death. They would be taken most likely to the temple. They would be killed and sacrificed as a testimony to the power and might of that general, of that powerful king. And so this triumphal procession is this. And as Paul comes to this section, we see this but. Thanks be to God who leads in Christ, who always leads us in triumphal procession, who always leads us in triumph in light of all these circumstances. And the question we need to ask as a good Westerner, a good American, is how does Paul see himself in that procession? My first first pass at this passage is the movie, right? It's Christ is, is leading the way, and there's Paul. He's, he's on the horse right next to him, or there we are in that procession with Christ. And yet, there's a different perspective, I believe, that Paul has. And, and others have had maybe different opinions, but I believe, and others would agree with this, that Paul's perspective of, this, of his position in the procession is not reigning in this respect with Christ who's with him. He is rather one of the captives. He is not a victor. He is a captive in this procession. He is one who's been captured and conquered by Christ and is now being led in triumphant procession. Indeed, triumphant, but nevertheless, he is a captive of Christ. And so we see that, that, this is, that, that he would understand himself in this way. I believe the rest of the, the context of this book the context of how Paul would understand himself, he would see, I'm not a conqueror, I'm not a commander. I'm nothing more than a captive. And as we think about another triumphal entry, another triumphal procession, we're reminded of Christ. And you remember that all four Gospels record as Jesus entered into Jerusalem prior, the week prior to his crucifixion, as he rode in on that donkey, and everybody worshipped him and said, Hosanna, blessed be the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be Him as He comes as the triumphant King into Jerusalem. And it wasn't but a few days later that this King, who was triumphant, but inevitably must pass through suffering, must pass through death, and in so doing, provided life and salvation for us. So it was inevitable that this King, who was triumphant, would pass through death, who would pass through the suffering that He must undergo. And in so doing, his will was united with Christ in the suffering. Or his, his will was united with the Father's in the suffering. And we have salvation that was offered because of his workforce, because of the fact that he was triumphant, but he was triumphant through death. 
And you might, might remember uh, last week when Lenny Andyshack was talking about God's power. His power was for us. And he came not to destroy, but he came to, to serve as a servant and as a slave. And as he laid his life down, he himself, Christ, was captive to the will of the Father. And in so doing, provided salvation. And Paul would see himself as a captive in, in this possession. He had been taken captive on the road to Damascus where Christ had literally met him and knocked him off his horse and disabled him so he could not see. He took him captive. And indeed, if you read through other, the rest of the letters of Paul, you'll see a very common term as he identifies himself as a slave. He identifies himself as a bondservant, as a slave, as a captive of Jesus Christ. Not a commanding officer, but a captive to do his will. As we understand the same captivity, the same procession that we are in, Christ inevitably leads us to our own death, our own suffering, just as those individuals in the procession would be led to their death. What's that look like for us? It looks like we dying to our own plans, dying to our own desires, our own aspirations for our lives. The, the things that are most dear for us, we lay at his feet. We've been taken captive by him, and so we give them to him. Say, these are yours. Not easily, but we do nonetheless. He's captivated us not by brute force, but by his love. He's demonstrated on the cross as he died for us. And his captives in the procession would be the trophies of the power of this victorious king, so we are trophies of God's grace. We're trophies as we follow along with him and taken captive by him, that of his grace and his power, his ability to save us, his ability to conquer, if you will, our own hearts, to subdue us and make us his. And so the, the, the position that Paul would see himself in the procession, the position that we see ourselves and Christ continues to lead us as one as his captives, one in which he leads us in procession and we submit to him as the king. Victorious, yes, but victorious only through our own death and only through our own submission to him. Uh, there's a, a book, there's a scene in the book, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Horse and His Boy, uh, that I'd like to read just briefly for you. Some of you might have read this, others have not. I won't spoil it for you, I promise, with this. But uh, in this, the, the whole story culminates at one point is there's a journey there that boy, girl, and two horses are taking to Narnia. In the end, two of the horses come face, to, they, they come to meet Aslan. If you remember, Aslan is the, really the Christ character um, representing he is a lion. And in this, this scene, uh, Aslan shows up. One of the horses is actually talking about how Aslan is not a lion. He couldn't be a lion, but then he shows up. And, and the female horse, her name is Wynne, is standing there and she sees the lion and comes towards him while everyone else scatters. And I want to read this little interaction because I think it helps us understand this captivity that Christ brings us in. The captivity of Christ. Then when, that's the, the horse, though shaking all over, gave a strange little neigh and trotted across to the lion. Please, she said, you're so beautiful, you may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. Dear's daughter, said Aslan, planting a lion's kiss on her twitching velvet nose. I knew you would not be long in coming to me. Joy shall be yours. She says, you are so beautiful, I would rather be eaten by you 
than, than fed by anyone else. And if I can kind of bend that illustration just a, a bit to our point. The captivity of Christ is better than the liberation of anyone else. Being in His captive forces, if you will, to be captive by Him is better and it's life-giving than any other place that we could go. And you see that Paul understands this, that this triumphal procession comes as he is captive. C.S. Lewis writes this as well in his autobiography, uh, Surprised by Joy, in the section where he describes his conversion. And his conversion in, in that autobiography is nothing less than being taken captive, where God comes and, and literally takes him as he, he says, I was the most reluctant convert in all of England. But he writes this about this conversion, about God's freedom. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And His compulsion is our liberation. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And His compulsion, His slavery, if you will, is our freedom. His compulsion is our liberation. And that's the, what it means to be taken captive by Christ. As we look at this, this imagery that Paul uses, he says he leads in triumph. The setting in which he leads us is one in which is a fallen setting, as fallen people the position is one is being taken captive by Christ. And for us, for each one of us, we ask the same kinds of questions. What will this triumphal process take us through? With death, with suffering, as you consider the myriad of situations that we find ourselves in. But the bottom line is, as we bow the knee, as we humbly submit ourselves to him who will eat us, who will consume us, who will have us, and we say, you're good. You will do what you will. Doesn't mean we don't hope, we don't pray, we don't long for the things. Doesn't mean we don't hurt, it just means that we trust. When we were doing that passport thing a few months ago, a month and a half ago, well actually about a month ago, and we were sitting around the table and we were trying to figure out, God, what does triumphal procession look like here? The end of that conversation ended in prayer. And we just prayed and we said, God, we don't know what you're up to. In fact, we've given up trying to figure out what you're up to. And we just need you to lead us. And we submit our plans and all of our path and our sequence of events, we submit them to you and say that you will lead us. And that's, in the end, we began to learn what it meant to trust him. And it was an attempt to say this is real and yet there's something more going on here. Have our perspective raised to see that he does lead in triumph, and nothing will thwart his plans. I read in the call to worship a couple verses from Lamentations where Jeremiah, right in the midst of much anguish, Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations chapter 3, he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You see the same kind of thing going on as Paul says, But thanks be to God in the midst of this. Jeremiah writes, but this I call to mind, and that's the process of reminding ourselves that his mercies are new. Day in and day out, God is faithful and he will lead us in triumph. We've just began to kind of look at this passage setting we all live in. It's real. We know it. God doesn't lead us around difficulties. He leads us right through them. And triumph is seen in the midst of it. Our position is one as captives, his captives. We will taste victory. Someday we will get to rule with him. But right now, he is still leading us and subduing our hearts. And we are captive in this procession as he leads us to triumph.
As we understand our setting, we understand our position in this, we're, we're prepared to understand what it looks like to participate because Paul goes on to talk about the fragrance of the knowledge of him that's spread everywhere through these captives. And next week we're going to continue with this passage and, and begin to look at what does that mean that we are called, that we're enabled to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we're grateful. It's a real world. We feel real hurts, and uh, we can't argue with that. We'd love to be led around them. Some you do, but some you don't. And so we, we trust you today, and we pray for eyes to see, hearts of faith to hold on to tightly the fact that you are leading us in triumph. No matter what the circumstances might tell us, enable us to trust you, to ask the questions but humbly, to bow the knee to you, our King, to acknowledge that we are your captives. Your captivity is our freedom. Your captivity is our life. Continue to help us to put to death ourselves so that we would find you and know you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.